Hebrews 11, verse 6. Let's pray before we open the word together. Our Father, we are thankful that you've given us your word. We're thankful that you have given us theologians that have come before us and teachers and preachers and ministers of the gospel who've helped us to understand that word more clearly. We pray that even this evening that you would equip us, the saints, for the work of the ministry. And that great ministry being that we would serve to your praise and glory. So would you open this word to us and even the greater teaching of the word this evening? And so it's in our hearts we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. This is the holy, inerrant Word of God. I sang too loud. Well, this evening we'll start a series, and we're starting a series on our triune God. It may seem a little odd to do a series like this. This isn't going to be, per se, an expositional series where we're going through a book of the Bible, which is our normal practice. Uh, we will also do a lot more doctrine theology uh, than we would normally do, um, but we will try and do that as we're looking at at least a passage and at least use it as a, if not just examining that passage, use it as a launching platform, if you will, to kind of look at how all the Scriptures speak. And tonight, more so than any other, I think, as we go through this, I don't prefer to preach this way. I don't think this should be what we should have as a steady diet, uh, but I do think it's helpful here and there uh, for us to tackle something together, and, and it shouldn't be a steady diet. It should be something that's special, and for it to be something special, it must be something that's not regular, uh, and this is not regular. But why this? Why this subject? I'm going to tackle over these six or seven weeks here in the fall. Why this subject or triune God. The reason is because it's the greatest topic. It's the greatest thing that you and I could think about together and think more deeply about together. There is nothing better for you and I to understand than this. And someone might say, well, if we're going to do a series like this, why don't we do something that is relevant, something that is, is practical if we're going to do a series? How is the doctrine of God relevant? And I would answer that and say that that's just a wrong question. It's a category mistake if you're asking that question. As if understanding God has a purpose beyond Him. 
Let's be clear, I want to be crystal clear, there is nothing greater that we could set our minds to or our hearts upon. All our quest, all of our search for meaning and for truth and for beauty and for joy and for peace is found in knowing Him. And He is the great reward of His people, as we'll see in the text tonight. He Himself is the great relevance. And just knowing Him. Second, there has been some confusion over the Trinity, in particular over these past few years in our own circles. And as a result, there's also been a resurgence in Trinitarian studies over the last four or five years in our circles. And I think it's helpful for us to re-examine it together. Uh, the church can easily forget just its basic beliefs, what we confess together, those things that are the very core of orthodoxy for us and what it actually means to be a Christian. And it can disappear in one generation if we don't go back to that well. It can be corrupted in just one generation if we don't go back to that well. And so we go back to something just like the Trinity to say, what, let's think again and afresh and help sow it in this generation. What is it that we actually believe about our God? What is it that is distinct about Him? That He is triune, that He is one in three persons. And what does that mean for you and I? How does that inform, I want to look at as we're going through these books, how does that inform our understanding of creation? How does that inform our understanding of society? How does that under, uh, inform our understanding of theology and doctrine and practice and life and family and marriage and on we go? Because it forms everything, who God is in His very essence. What I hope to do each week in the series is just briefly look at a passage and then work out the theology from that passage and other related passages. And my hope is that we'll understand God more fully and we'll safeguard ourselves from error, but ultimately that we will fall more in love with the God that we worship. That's the great aim. So our passage this evening, Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. You'll notice that there are two things that must be believed, the writer of Hebrews says. He, he launches into this entire chapter on faith and what is the essence of faith and what is the meaning of faith and who were the great people of faith. So you and I have all of these examples that we can look at. And as he is exploring this in this chapter, he says that one must believe two things. Two things are absolutely essential. It's not merely that these things are good or that they're helpful to believe these two things. No, there is a, a must in this verse. One must believe these two things. And what are they? One, that God exists. And two, that He is a rewarder of those who seek after Him. He exists. That's number one. 
We cannot come to God apart from believing that He is. That God exists is the fundamental truth in the world. As Edward Lay, a 17th century reformer, said this, he said that God is, is the most manifest, clear, evident, ungainsalable truth in the world. It is the first verity that is the first truth and the principal verity from which all other truth has its original, and it is the foundation of all true goodness and religion truly to believe it. If we don't believe that God exists, then everything else falls. There's no other truth to pursue. Every other truth flows from the truth that we believe God exists. I often think of that as we're ministering in a university town and university students and studying all of these things, studying education and psychology and physical sciences and mechanical engineering and all of these things that are being studied and all of this knowledge that is to grow. And yet, there is no ascertaining of true truth unless you have the first truth, that God exists. And everything flows from that. It actually informs all the other disciplines. It puts them all in order so that they make sense. Math only makes sense because God exists. Engineering only works because God exists. That's the first. We start there. Second, the other thing the writer of Hebrews says we must believe is that God rewards those who seek Him. This God who exists is a rewarder. Van Maastricht, a Reformed theologian from the early 17th century, one of my favorite systematic theologies was written by him. He said the author of Hebrews here is speaking about those who, quote, not only seek Him by faith and religion, but who diligently seek Him, that is, who seek in such a way that they find Him, and having found Him, receive Him as their highest end and enjoy that end eternally. That is, He is the greatest thing you can seek. And once you find Him, that's seeking Him, once you find Him, you receive Him. And you realize that as you receive Him, that He is the greatest end that you can seek. That the great reward is actually God Himself. He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. Paul in Romans 11 will echo this very sentiment. He says there, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or shown, or who has given Him a gift that He might be repaid? That is, God exists. And look at this God who exists. He's incomprehensible. And as he is contemplating and thinking about this God that exists, it then leads him to say this in a, in a kind of eruption of doxology there at the end of that passage, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen, Paul says. 
All theology is meant to lead to doxology. In a very real sense, we are not ever talking about God unless we are praising God. There's no understanding of who God is if worship is not the response. So often talk about God as if He is a thing, to be something that is to be studied or examined and And what Paul shows there and what Van Maastricht was saying is that you can't do that. If you truly know and understand what it is that he is, who he is, then it immediately causes an eruption of praise to him. Right theology leads to doxology, praise. So in light of that and thinking about that together, I want us over these weeks not to tackle this coldly as we go forward. Knowing Him better should lead us to praise Him. In light of this passage and to set the stage for further weeks, we must establish what it means for us to know God. I want to walk through that this evening. What does it mean to to know our triune God. How is it that we know Him? What does it look like to know Him? What are we actually saying when we say that we know Him? I want to look at it in four points and then a few applications this evening. So first, our first point is this. We must understand that all knowledge of God comes from God. All knowledge of God comes from God. That is to say, there must be revelation. Apart from God revealing Himself, we know nothing of Him. We could not even know that He exists, as the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, knowledge of Him does not come by our imaginations. It doesn't come by what we hope He will be or what we think He should be. It must begin with Him. And since He reveals Himself, since He provides revelation of who He is, we're able to say things about God that are true. Second, and a longer point, second, we must understand that though God reveals Himself, we do not know Him as He knows Himself. Though God reveals Himself, we do not know Him as He knows Himself. Theologically, we have differentiated between how God knows Himself and how we know Him by His revelation of Himself to us. And in theology, we have divided this into two categories, two terms that have been used over the centuries to mark this distinction out, there is the archetypal theology and there is the ectypal theology. Archetypal theology is that infinite knowledge of God known only to God Himself. And and this is the pattern for all ectypal theology. Ectypal theology is what we know. This is defined as all true finite theology, all theology, all knowledge of God to which finite minds, you and I have finite minds, what we can have access to. John Webster, a modern day theologian, commented along these lines. He said, Christian theological talk about God 
does no more than putter around the foothills in the knowledge of the perfect God. And he's right. There is an archetype theology, how he knows himself, and there is an ectypal, just what you and I can understand with these little finite minds that we have. Even if we think back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve did not possess archetypal theology. Creatures can't, and they won't have this type of knowledge. We didn't in the garden, and we won't in heaven. When we are in glory, our knowledge of God will never be comprehensive even while our knowledge of Him remains true. We know that He exists. And thus, we know something about His essence. We know, as von Maastricht pointed out, for example, that God is not material. He's not dependent. He's not mutable. He's not composite. He's not finite. We also know positive things. We know, for example, that there is a will. There is a goodness. There is a holiness. There is a righteousness. There is love in God. We know that that is tied up with His essence. And so we can combine what we know is not true of Him and what we know is true of Him. And we have some semblance of who He is. We have some sense of who He is in His essence. But as Van Maastricht says, of that very essence what it is in itself, we have entirely no concept. In previous days, theologians would often use the sun as an example. We know more about the sun today, so you don't see it as an example today, but theologians in previous centuries would say, well, you can tell something about the sun by the effects of the sun in the world. We know something about the sun by what occurs in our world as a result of the sun. But they would say, what we don't know, is the sun liquid or is it gas? Or is it solid? What is it? Is it really just a bowl of fire? So we, we don't know in its essence, they would say, but we know something of it because of how we see it manifest in this world and what it causes in this world. We must understand that God is not known by us according to His essence. We cannot, with our finite minds, take in that which is ineffable and infinite. Gregory of Nazianzus, an Eastern Church father, said this. He said, the nature of God cannot be perceived. At least we cannot have a full and perfect knowledge. Therefore, whatever it is that we understand of God, we understand according to our capacity. And God reveals Himself to us. There is revelation to us according to our capacity. Calvin would speak of it as if God lisps to us. That is, like we speak to a toddler. He speaks to us in a way that we can understand and we can comprehend. So we grab something. God reveals Himself not as He is in infinite grandeur and glory and majesty, but as we have capacity. I often think of it like taking a, a bottle to the beach. If you take a bottle to the beach and you have this vast ocean that is in front of you, and you take that bottle and you 
reach down and you put that bottle into the surf and the water fills that bottle. If we, we had that bottle and we brought it back from the beach, and you would say, well, you have the ocean. It's filled. This bottle is filled with the fullness of the ocean. You could say that. That's true. That's also not true. It truly has the ocean, but it does not have the ocean fully. What it has capacity for, we can say it has. If someone walked up and said, does that bottle contain the ocean's waters? We would say yes and no. Yes, if you mean it is truly ocean water. No, if you mean does the waters in this bottle contain all that is truly ocean. It is, it has what it has capacity for. Third, this means that we must refrain from thinking or saying or acting as if we can define God. This means that we must refrain from thinking or saying or acting as if we can define God. We know He exists. We have to believe that. We can know Him truly because He reveals Himself, but we cannot define Him. And you have to remember that as you seek Him. A person of faith that is seeking God knows that they can't define God. For example, God differs differently than anything else differs from something else. God differs differently. Even when we speak in a way of negation from our ectypal theology, from what we understand of God, we will often speak of negation. We will say that He is not this, and therefore He must be this. And we do that because it's easier to say what God is not than to say what He is. Because by saying what He is not, now all of this is open, but saying what He is, you've defined parameters. And so we will often say things like, He is indivisible, that is, He is unable to be divided. We will say He is infinite, that is, He is not finite. He is incomprehensible, that is, He can't be comprehended. And yet, even when we speak in a way of negation, God differs differently. He is different from creatures in a wholly other way than creatures differ from one another. So, for example, we might say, and you often hear it, where people say, well, God is outside of time. Well, yes and no. You can say that, but you really can't say that. He isn't outside of time per se. Time isn't a box that, that keeps him out. He transcends time. We speak of him as being. He's a being. And some say you can't speak of God as a being. Who's right? Is he a being or is he not a being? Well, Yes, and no. It truly depends on what we mean. God is a being. He exists. And yet He also transcends being. He's not one part that makes up the category of beings. 
You remember when Moses is on the mount with God, and he says, who shall I say has sent me? And God just says to him, I am who I am. That is, I just exist. I am. He simply is. He doesn't belong to a larger category. He smashes all categories. Scott Swain, a a friend and professor, made this helpful distinction for me. We were talking about this, and he was reflecting upon that Aristotle, for example. If you go back to the Greek philosophy, Aristotle would define humans as rational animals, that the larger category is animals. And Aristotle would say, but there are two categories within the category of animals. You have rational animals and you have irrational animals. You have beasts of the earth that are irrational. And then you have within this category of animals, you have rational animals that are humans. But you see, there is no larger category for God. He's not a subset of something that is larger. He blows up every category. He just is. God is not one of anything. Fourth, and finally, though we cannot define Him, we can truly know Him according to what He has revealed to us. Though we cannot define Him, we can truly know Him according to what He has revealed to us. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. We're not at a loss. Some will say, well, we can't know Him as He fully is. Yes, but that does not mean that we don't know Him as He truly is. We can seek Him because He can be truly known, and He rewards those who seek Him. Thomas Ridgely, a 17th century theologian, said it this way. He said, though God cannot be perfectly described, yet there is something of Him that we may know and ought to make the matter of our study in diligent inquiries. He points out that when the glory of the Lord is set forth in Scripture, we're not to look upon these expressions of who God is in Scripture as some kind of words that don't have meaning. They very much have meaning. Ridgely rightly said this, he said, It is one thing to have adequate ideas of an infinitely perfect being, and another thing to have no ideas at all of Him. We have ideas of Him, to use Ridgely's language. They're adequate ideas of a perfect being using our imperfect language and our imperfect finite minds. True ideas, though they are imperfect ideas, they are not false ideas. Why? Because it's His revelation of Himself. You see, this makes all the difference He has spoken. He's told us who He is by lisping to us in words that we can understand, that our finite minds can take in. And this is how He has chosen to reveal Himself. So we can say that though we don't fully know Him, we truly know Him. Another way to think about this is that lower realities give us some knowledge of the higher realities. 
Now, the lower reality may be radically different, yet there is something similar that, in that higher reality. So, for example, we may say, well, that man is good. There is a goodness about that man or that woman. And then we will say that God is good. Now, when we speak about God being good, are we really comparing these two things that when we're speaking about the goodness of that man or woman, that somehow that reflects the goodness of God? We would say not in its essence. But there is some shadow of what we see resembled in this lower reality that is true of the higher reality. As we see goodness here, so there is some semblance that we understand of the goodness there. Let me give you another example. I was at the Detroit Symphony Orchestra uh, two weeks ago with my daughter Grayson. It was like two of her passions colliding together. It was symphony orchestra music and then playing Star Wars music. This was like we had arrived one step from heaven. And we were sitting there listening to the Detroit Symphony Orchestra play through the, all the Star Wars music. And at one point, they were playing a song, and she leans over to me in the middle of that song, and she says, I can play that. Now, what'd she mean? I knew what she meant. It would be quite an extraordinary feat that if on her little keyboard upstairs in her room she could play what we heard that night, she'd be quite the pianist. That she could, on that keyboard, reflect the music of, I'd have looked this up, 30 violins, 12 violas, 12 cellos, let alone 8 double basses, 4 flutes, clarinets, oboes, bassoons, horns, trumpets, trombones, drums, and a tuba. She can't reflect that. But I knew what she meant. That she could play that song on her little keyboard and that lower reality was somehow true of what we were hearing in that higher reality. There's an important distinction here. This is, I think, one of the ways in which we're forced to recognize that there's a distinction between the Creator and the creation. Though God reveals Himself in Revelation, He's given to, uh, Himself to us in a way that we can comprehend. It also makes it clear to us that God is distinct from His revelation. That is, we can't confuse the two. And this is where we constantly get into trouble. Is that we take this God that is the creator of all things and is above all things, and somehow we try to put Him within the parameters of our creation, whether that is in our ideas, whether that is in what we can define, whether that is in definition, whether that is in words. But you see, you can't mix the creator with the creation. He doesn't conform to His creation. He's above it. He can't be consumed in His creation. He is not it, and it is not Him. As God says to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens 
are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our God is great. And even as you think about knowing Him, it's meant to blow every single circuit in your head in every category you have. He can't be confined. He doesn't fit nicely into a subcategory. He just is. A few applications in closing as we seek to know God. As human beings, if we seek knowledge in ourselves, then we, you must realize, must know everything to know anything truly. As human beings, if we seek knowledge in ourselves, then we must know everything to know anything truly. But the Christian faith says that true knowledge is found outside of oneself. It's found by the revelation that we receive from heaven. And so we begin there. You want to understand anything, you begin with knowledge of God. So we seek that knowledge first and foremost. To be students of God. So many things that we busy ourselves learning about. Went out golfing with Leah for the first time the other night. I hadn't been golfing for 25 years. I found myself later that night watching three YouTube videos about how to, how to hit a golf ball. We'll busy ourselves with gaining knowledge about all kinds of things. But you be a student of God. This is a, a subject that you can explore and you will explore for all of eternity and you can never reach the depths of it. If you open your Scriptures and you expect not to be surprised or to learn anything new or to show up on Sunday morning or Sunday evening and learn nothing new, then you don't know your God. He's incomprehensible. We do not and cannot know everything. We know the Christ who knows everything, and He has revealed everything He wants us to know in His Word and by nature. And therefore, we can say that Christ knows a little bit about everything. All the while, we don't know everything about anything, but we know the One who does, and He speaks to us. And He is worth pursuing with our hearts and with our souls and with our minds. Second, we are to be both humble and confident in light of what we know. We're to be humble because we never attain to the heights of divine knowledge. Pride and arrogance in a Christian I find to be the most offensive thing there is because how could a Christian be proud? What we know, we only know by gift. And what we know is so small. Oh, I know so much more than that person over there. Oh, if you only understood. It's like a caterpillar knowing more than an ant. It doesn't make any sense. 
Whatever we know, we know by revelation. And whatever we understand, we only understand in part. God is not like us. And the triviality that we often speak or think or treat Him with is a form of silly contempt. His thoughts are above our thoughts and His ways above our ways because He is above us. Not in a way that can be measured, but infinitely above us in every way. He's not a specimen to be examined. There's a reason God silences Job at the end of the book. There's a reason that when Isaiah sees the holy God before him that he puts his hand over his mouth and he prostrates himself. There's a reason that John in the, God, in, the Rev, in the book of Revelation that when he has this vision of Christ that he falls down as though dead. We have to say that even our very best theology is still lacking and it's imperfect. So there's humility. And yet we can also be confident in our knowledge. What we know of God, we know from God. And so yes, it is mysterious. Yes, it is ectypal. But He has also revealed it to us. What we know, we know truly. God is not an undefined ethereal mystery for us. He has told us who He is and we can make true and right statements about God based upon His revelation of who He truly is. No doubt there's mystery. But there's also certitude. This is who I said I am. So we believe it. Finally, we must end where we began. All theology is meant to lead to doxology. As I said at the beginning, in a very real sense, we are not really ever talking about God unless we're praising God. There's no understanding of who God is if worship is not the response. And I want you to think about that tonight. Our words can't hold Him. Our minds can't fully comprehend Him. He is so far beyond us, and yet He speaks to us so that we can have some true semblance of knowledge about Him. And then, amazingly, He rewards us for it. <laughs> God is like this God. As we think upon Him together over these weeks, we're, and I hope every Sunday, week in and week out, I, I hope that we get lost in Him. My prayer often before I start a service with you is, Lord, so move in that room that as I'm speaking, I just kind of fade into the background and they don't even see me anymore. They don't even hear me in one sense anymore. They're just caught up with you. There's a, there's a holy delight and seeking to plumb these depths where there is complete and utter joy. Where this God who is so far above our thoughts has chosen to reveal Himself to us so that we can know Him. Truly know Him. Not fully, but truly. 
so that we can truly delight in Him and truly praise Him. As we think upon Him together, we are to become lost in Him. There is to be a holy wonder, a holy awe that descends upon us. To flee from that temptation, to be like a scientist prodding a specimen that's under our microscope, that is never a right position for a creature, let alone a Christian, to be in when considering God. It's never from above. It's always from below that we're looking to Him. And that's a posture of humility, and that is a posture of dependence, and that is a posture of praise and worship. So as you read, as you think upon God, as you seek to grow in your knowledge of Him, as you seek after Him, knowing that He rewards you for it, may it always be in a posture of worship. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are thankful that You have chosen to reveal Yourself to sinners such as us and to think that You would reward those who seek after You. May we be those who diligently seek after You, who want to love You with more of our whole hearts and our strength and our souls and our minds. We would not become theologues for the sake of being theologues, but that we would grow in our knowledge of You so that we might be better worshipers of You. For what delight there is in You, and what glory You should receive from Your creatures. May You receive it even now, and as we go home and as we start our weeks in the world. In Christ's name, amen.